Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Everybody, welcome back. This is the second part of our episode with Tron Erling Pedersen, the category manager for Vin Monopoly, the wine monopoly of Norway. Last episode, we talked about the Norwegian wine consumer. And in this episode, Tron is going to be describing how the wine monopoly works in great detail. Listen to the previous episodes for Tron's background, but let's jump right into it. So Norway is somewhat unique, I think, with other parts of Scandinavia, parts of Canada, and a few states in the U.S. I think Robert was joking earlier that it's all the cold places in the world (laughs) to have a wine monopoly or alcohol monopoly system where alcohol is primarily or even only sold through this monopoly state-run store. Could you give us a sense of within Norway, what's the total scale of the wine monopoly? Like how many stores does it have, the vast selection that you talked about, et cetera? We're still opening a small number of new shops every year, but we are now in a situation where more than 95% of the population live within a 30-minute drive from one of our shops. So uh, we cover uh, pretty much all of Norway, even though it's a fairly big and long country. Right now, we have 340 shops across uh, Norway, obviously varying in size from small shops with a basic selection in the small villages and the rural areas to larger shops with an extensive selection in uh, bigger cities. But all the shops uh, have what I would call, in all modesty, a world-class selection of wines. And in total, our customers can select from more than 32,000 different products or SKUs, of which more than 20 thousand are wines but of course they can all fit into one store in our what we call our basic range there are about thousand wines to choose from and these are the products that are also always on display in the shelves in our stores of course adapted to the size of the shop but uh, that's sort of the basic range what you can see in the shelves and just choose for yourself and in addition, we have the what's called the ordering range that allows Norwegian importers to stock whatever products they want to offer to our customers. And our customers can then order the products from our website, from our app, or by contacting our stores or call center, and then have the wines or the products delivered to their home or their post office or go pick it up for free at our retail stores. And then our shops can also select about 20-25% of the total shelf space in the store. They can select from this ordering range in order to adapt to local demand. So they will have the, the basic range and then they can add to this when it comes to the summer season, the Christmas season or any local eating traditions and so on. So volume-wise, last year in 2021, in total, we sold 118 million liters. And as I mentioned, 96 million liters of this was wine, translating to 10.6 million cases. 
And in terms of economy, this attributed to 27 billion Norwegian kroner, so $2.7 billion, which a considerable portion goes back to the Norwegian government in the form of taxes and as well as uh, most of the profits. You talked a little bit about having the best selection as part of the mission of the wine monopoly. Could you give us just an overview of why the monopoly was put into place in the first place and sort of what is its overall mission or vision? Why we were put into place was mainly due to overdrinking and not due to uh, the demand for a very big selection. First of all, it's worth mentioning that we're celebrating our 100th birthday this November, so that's a big occasion. So as you can see, we uh, we were put into place in 1922. The backdrop is that there was considerable problems with overdrinking in Norway at the turn of the century, especially in the bigger cities where uh, the workers, factory workers, were using their wages for drinking and fighting out on the town instead of bringing it home to feed their wives and kids at home, very broadly speaking. But alcohol was a considerable source of poverty, of hunger and social issues. And the alcohol restriction movement grew stronger. And then in 1919, there was a ban on spirits put into place in Norway after a national referendum. And then a few years later, in 1922, the government created this national monopoly in order to ensure responsible sale of alcohol throughout the country. And this is still our main goal and main purpose, uh, is to make sure that alcohol is bought and consumed in reasonable forms and quantities to stop minors and intoxicated people from buying alcohol in a way that at the same time provides the population of Norway with a great selection of products and with really top class customer service because that's what we mainly live from and that's why people still support us. So we've talked a lot about the consumers and the retail locations. How does the wine monopoly work with restaurants and on-premise? Mostly the restaurants and bars, they buy directly from the Norwegian importers and producers, like in most other markets. There might, of course, be a few places in rural areas that will buy a small selection from our stores, but mainly it's a direct trade between the importers and producers and the bars and restaurants. This does not go through the wine monopoly. It's the importer-producer who sets the price for the restaurant, so... uh, They will have discounts for larger chains of restaurants and so on. So the restaurant market is probably pretty similar to other countries. It's a separate system from the wine monopoly. The importers and the suppliers who bring the wine into Norway, they can sell their products both through the wine monopoly and directly to restaurants. So uh, most of them work on both markets. When restaurants are purchasing, are they looking to buy or source wines that are not available at the wine monopoly? To a certain extent, they might be, but we're also seeing that a lot of trends are starting in the restaurant market. So maybe sommeliers are picking up wines or styles that will match with the food they're serving at the restaurant, and then the restaurant guests will taste the wine there and enjoy it and come to to the wine monopoly to find a similar style or find that specific wine. So we often see that trend is starting in the restaurant or bar market, and then the people will come to us to buy the same products and bring it home. And since you have the retail monopoly, if you were to look at the total wine purchasing in a year for Norway, what percentage is in the restaurants versus retail through you? I'm not sure. I don't really have those numbers uh, at the top of my head. The majority is through the, the wine monopoly and the Restaurant market is also more leaning towards the high-end wines, I would say. A lot of them have cellars where they uh, store uh, top-quality wines for years. And the restaurant guests who have 
the money and have the interest, we'll go to the restaurant market to buy the ready uh, mature wines there and find some of the wines that we sell some bottles of through the air, but that are bought very quickly from the retail market and they can find the big famous producers often in the restaurant market if they can no longer find it in our selection. And how do you go about sourcing wines for your stores? You talked a little bit about that matrix that you're looking through to make sure that you're giving a outlook, but like, what is the actual sourcing in terms of getting the wines in from importers? I mentioned our ordering range earlier, which is a way of ensuring free access to our market, which is important because we are a monopoly. So uh, that's how we ensure the, the free market access by allowing all our suppliers to choose to list whatever they want in this range and sell it to Norwegian customers. So they can choose to sell whatever they want in that range, as long as the product, of course, meets the demands and set by Norwegian and European law. But when it comes to what's in our shelves on a day-to-day basis, our basic range, it's a quite different process and more complicated. We start out, me and the team that I work with, by looking at sales figures. We follow trends that I mentioned at home and abroad. We analyze movements in the market, how uh, the customer demand changes. We look for sort of holes in our assortment, what could fit our customers, but we don't have it in the shelves right now. We do analysis uh, and then we do extensive research by meeting with producers, with importers. We travel to wine regions, we visit trade fairs and so on. And this all ends up in a tender plan that we publish twice a year. There we outline very specifically what products we want to purchase for the coming period. And very detailed. We'll say for the launch next year, we want a red wine from Piemonte. It has to be based on 100% Barbera. It has to be certified organic. Maximum price, 200 kroner. Vintage 2021. It has to be delivered in a lightweight glass bottle, so on. And then all our suppliers are invited to send us samples that match the specified. And then we have a tasting panel, an ISO certified tasting panel with experienced wine professionals that all work for the wine monopoly who prepare and discuss what they could expect from a 200 kroner Barbera, for instance. And then they will taste all the samples in a blind tasting and score them according to quality based on the tender specification. So they don't know what's in the glass, don't know who the producer is. All they have is a glass with a number on it and they will taste it blind and score it according to quality. And then we purchase the products that give our customers the best quality. And of course we take price and the available number of bottles into consideration and we decide how to distribute each product. So then they're launched in our stores and our customers can buy them a few months later. And then when the products are launched, they're guaranteed a place in our shelves for 12 months for a year. And after this, they have to compete and then they'll compete with similar products. For instance, our red wine at 200 kroner Barbera will compete with our other red wines in the same price bracket based on sales volume. So this ensures that the products that the customers enjoy and buy and the ones that are really popular, they're the ones who deserve a place in our shelves for the coming period. It's a quite extensive process, but it's also a very fair process and it ensures several things. It gives our customer quality products in all categories and all price ranges. It makes sure that all the producers and suppliers can compete on level grounds in a fair way. So whether they're a small family business or a large supplier with a big advertising budget, they still compete on the same grounds. It's all down to the quality in the glass and the actual 
customer demand. And it ensures that no one can buy their way into our shelves like they can in a lot of supermarket chains in other countries. How many importers do you work with typically? It's been growing a lot uh, for the last few years. And now I think there's more than 600 different companies supplying at the moment, ranging from local breweries and distilleries to uh, enthusiasts to import a few wines as a part-time job small family importer companies, larger uh, importer companies who cater to both our market and the restaurant market, and also, of course, the, the multinational giants from the spirits industry. So we get all kinds of, uh, of importers. Okay, so in order to be an importer, it's not it doesn't have to necessarily be a, a local company. You can buy directly from a winery or a large conglomerate? We never buy directly from wineries. It always has to go through a supplier. So even if it's a local Norwegian brewery or distillery or whatever, they will have to have a company that represents them in all trade and all contact with the monopoly. But we can, of course, go visit them and taste their products and inform them about how our system works. That's a different matter. But all the purchasing is done through suppliers. So for a winery that may be a listener to our show, what advice would you give to them if they're looking to sell into the wine monopoly? Since we don't trade directly with any producers, they will need to be represented by a Norwegian supplier. And their Norwegian importer company will then take care of all the communication with us at the wine monopoly. And they will also be a very valuable partner when it comes to advising on styles that work in the Norwegian market, the market trends, all the tender plants, and also the restaurant market. So that's probably the most important thing is to find a, an importer that fits your needs. So when it comes to pricing, how does the wine monopoly think about it? Is there like a standard formula or how does it work? Yeah, there is a standard formula and it's sort of our margins, our share of the product price is set amount. It's calculated in a way that's fully transparent. It's open on our website, and it's also a very small part of the final price. It's the supplier that calculates and actually decides the final sales price. Of course, we ask for maximum prices when we do the tender plans, but it's the supplier that does the final calculation. So in rough numbers for an average bottle of wine, taxes are about 50% of the final price for the wine. Then our margin is about 10 or 15%, depending on the wine's price. And then the rest is the supplier's share. So those final 35 to 40%, how that's divided between the importer, the producer, the transport company, and so on, that's all up to the supplier. Oh, wow. So the supplier sets the end price, but they know that the taxes and the wine monopoly margin are this much or this percentage so that they have to back into what their take would be. Exactly how it's done. So we have uh, these uh, calculators uh, in our systems that uh, the importers can go into and punch in what kind of wine it is, the alcohol percentage and so on. And they will see the taxes will be this much. The wine monopoly's margin will be this much. And how much will they have left to share between themselves, the producer, the transporter, and so on. Will that also calculate or telegraph potential sales volume by the price point? Not necessarily by the price point itself, but the importers all know what it takes to sell their way into the basic range, for instance. If they are to launch a German Riesling at a certain price point, they know exactly how much is demanded in order to sell their way into our shelves. So uh, the importers will take care of all that all those aspects of how our system works. If the wine monopoly is the only place to buy wine retail, does that mean there's no, what we would call in the US or in parts of Europe, secondary market for wines where 
you might sell maybe a highly allocated wine, like a DRC or something. There's no other merchant that could resell that wine. Well, for years it was like that, but it's changed during the last uh, 10 years. Um, I should mention that we also purchase every year the wine you mentioned and all those others very sought after, uh, Burgundy's, Bordeaux's, uh, top Piemonte producers, champagnes and so on, that would never submit a wine to our basic range competition, so to speak. So we have a small team that work with uh, hand selecting and acquiring those kinds of products so we can um, sell them to the small amount of very dedicated customers who are looking for those kinds of products. So we have a system for that as well. And then that's the, uh, the only time we sort of hand pick and, uh, and buy directly some products, but it also goes through an importer in the selection, what we call the special selection. But when it comes to the secondhand market, we've started with auctions through the Wine Monopoly system. So we have uh, web-based auctions where uh, people from all across Norway can sell their wine if they have a wine cellar or uh, certain bottles they would like to sell, or uh, they can, of course, buy the same bottle. So they will have a catalog and they will log into the website and uh, there will be um, a normal auction process where they can um, submit bids for the products and buy a bottle of uh, a highly sought after mature wine from a seller they can trust. We have people who, who work on valuing the wines and uh, deciding if they've been stored properly and who are also uh, getting an education in, in spotting fraudulent wines and how you can spot a, a real bottle of um, Bordeaux, top Bordeaux from a fake one. Just out of curiosity, what are the fees for the auctions? Sort of the same uh, same system. We have a set amount, a set percentage that goes to the wine monopoly and the work we do in arranging the auctions. And uh, our partner is an auction house who also do uh, art auctions and all kinds of other auctions. Whoever is selling the wine will get um, a price that we think it will be worth when they sell it. And then it's all up to the bidders to see how it ends. But we have a set fee, a set percentage that we get. Do you know how high that is? Because in the U.S., some of the auctions are like 20 to 30 percent. It's nowhere near that. It's fairly limited, but I don't have the, the numbers in my head, but it's uh, fully transparent in our website. It's not another 50 percent of taxes. It's a buyer's premium, Peter. It's not a tax. The people who are selling the wine have probably paid tax for it once when they bought it already. Right. So for the next time I'm in Norway, what would you recommend as the best way to get the best value for wines? First of all, I would ask the staff in our stores, uh, as I mentioned, they're highly skilled staff. They will know what fits your taste in your wallet. And then generally speaking, there are some styles that are really readily available in almost all our stores and that, in, in my opinion, provide really great value for money. Dry German Riesling, for instance, that provides really great quality for maybe half the price of what you would pay for Burgundy, for instance. Lesser-known appellations in Bordeaux and Burgundy, the northern part of Piemonte, Alto Piemonte with the Gatinara and Gemma and some other great appellations. And also Portugal, I think, is a great country when it comes to value for money wines, both red and white, and with a lot of exciting things going on from a, a new generation of winemakers. Champagne from smaller producers or producers that are less known than the Grand Marc. More expensive wines like Champagne are also... They're the same price in our market compared to other markets because uh, the share of the total price 
the taxes is a smaller share of the total price. So uh, we can uh, really compete on price as well when it comes to, for instance, champagne. And of course, countries like Chile, New Zealand, South Africa, who provide very well-made, typical, precise wines from grapes like Pinot Noir, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. We also have a lot of wine from more unknown countries like Greece, Georgia, Lebanon that are available in a lot of our stores and that really over-deliver when it comes to quality for the price. Trunt, to wrap up on a personal note, we want to thank you for all of your insights into the wine monopoly of Norway. But we want to end on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you drank in the last year and who did you drink it with? Well, uh, I obviously can't talk about producers or brands because we're a monopoly and we have to treat everyone on an equal basis uh, and also because of the ban on advertising. But um, I could mention a really great evening with my colleagues who I work with on the tender plants and the other assortment work. A few months ago, we did what I imagine wine professionals in all parts of the world really like doing is get together and make some great food and then bring out some bottles for blind tasting. And then one of my colleagues had brought a, a bottle wrapped in tinfoil that we all tasted and agreed this had to be our white burgundy from a very good producer at a top quality level. It had this sort of concentration of perfectly ripe fruit balanced with just enough oak to make it exciting and this complexity a mineral touch this enticing little reductive smoky flinty note that you get from a great white burgundy and then the tinfoil came off and it turned out to be a german wine made from chardonnay and pinot blanc made in of course a burgundy style but very reasonably priced and available in a lot of our stores the morale and the thing to remember is, yes, don't be too sure when blind tasting and uh, open your eyes to the great quality that might lie there somewhere off the beaten path. Peter and I have been humbled on a regular basis by blind tasting, so we're, <laughs> we're no stranger. We're no stranger. Otron, well, thank you for all of your insights. This has been super informative. We look forward to uh, hopefully having a glass in person someday. I hope so. I hope you get the chance to come to Norway and check out our uh, weird but still well-functioning system over here. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.